The Map Room, a business owner's guide to the art of harnessing choice. The podcast that explores the world of business through the decisions owners face and the choices they create. Join the conversation with Paul Barnes and Stuart Brown as they walk through some of the toughest decisions you have to make while leading a business and how understanding the choices can be used to guide strategy and optimize outcomes. Brought to you by Map and a host of special guests. Well, hello and welcome once more back into the Map Room. I'm delighted to say that we've had a lot of feedback from our first episode and we're going to be uh, maybe reinvestigating something that was brought up there and has had a lot of discussion. And I would suggest it's probably the most discussed but maybe the least understood issue amongst business owners and that is the terror of due diligence. So I'm delighted to give a warm welcome today into the map room to John Davidge, who's the head of corporate at Berman's. So John, morning to you and thank you for giving us up your time. Yeah, thanks for having me. The um, piece that we said originally when we started this podcast was we didn't want theorists and therefore sometimes when we look to bring an expert in, the risk is we're talking in theory, we're talking in um, ideology potentially. We don't want that. We always said we'd bring in those people who had probably got battle scars and been on been on you know been on a journey with this so obviously we've got John in because he is a corporate lawyer he's got a lot of experience but the unique thing for me today and the reason we really chose John was John's actually just recently sat on the client side of this uh, and has actually managed his own due diligence process and the sale of his own business so I think that's really unique and hopefully useful to our visitors so maybe as part of a start and part of a place setting as I like to describe it John explain that and talk to us a little bit about you your experience but more specifically where you've been on the client side yeah um, as I said I've done M&A for for 20 years and advised high growth businesses through the business life cycle Um, so I've always I've always been on on the legal side of that and, and and put the building blocks in place from from growth to sale but being on the client side as well, what I personally experienced was the reality of actually doing due diligence when you're running a very, very busy business. Um, and the key takeaway I got from that was that you need to have a team around you uh, as early on as possible. A trusted team, which includes your lawyers and your accountants and your corporate finance advisors, but also internally. So not necessarily shareholders, but in particular someone with a finance function someone that understands the contractual side of the business and you need to be able to trust them and have confidential conversations with them. And that that was a key learning experience because at the start of the process, us as the shareholders thought we could do everything ourselves and run a very, very business, very busy business, which included employees and business strategy decisions and also the M&A process that I head up over Berman. So that was a key takeaway. You, You need a team and you need to appoint it early on. That's really interesting, John, because one of the um, concepts of this podcast is the choices that business owners create themselves and the options that they therefore take the decisions. And one of the decisions that I'm never entirely black and white on, uh, which is usually unusual for me, for those people who know me, uh, is that of when do you engage that team you just said there, particularly internally? And having gone through it myself, I've done it differently. There are those that sometimes are secretive, not by any malicious intent, but they're not sure this is going to happen. And do I tell this story to the staff? Do I engage with people? And what happens if it doesn't happen? 
So you mentioned there about some internal people. And again, um, obviously, we say to every guest on here, there's nothing that you should um, feel you can't, you know, is, is confidential. We're not wishing you to, uh, you know, unload any of that. But did you go through that decision making process as both the lawyer advising and the client to go, OK, before was it before we start this process? These are the people we need. Or did that team evolve as you went through the process? I, I would say that is that is when you're you're getting into the process, but there is absolutely no reason why you can't prepare well before. I mean, every I'd say ninety five percent of a business owner's objective is to sell the business. Some some may want to keep them and, and run it, and then you know not want to sell. But when you set up a business, that has to be your objective. So why not start to prepare very early on? And it's always good corporate governance to have these these building mm. blocks in place. So. You know, if if you've got a time horizon of, of, of three years as an exit, very, very simple to open a Dropbox or a data room and put in a standard uh, legal, financial and tax due diligence questionnaire. Mm. Um, and you can up the, update that and give yourself time because the main thing I found was the time to actually apply to the due diligence process when you're running your business. If you've got used to that process over a number of months or, or maybe a year, then it's all ready. Um, particularly on the financial side. Mm. Um, and experience tells you that management accounts, end-of-year accounts that are drafted for filing at company's house or in discussions with your accountants are quite different to when you draft them for M&A because you're going into the completion accounts process mm. and the debt-free, cash-free. So that's quite complicated stuff. And as a business owner, to get your head around that when you're in a process and there's a time pressure, is, is very stressful. Yeah. So prepare before, and it's always good corporate governance to know where your documents are, whether it's in a sale or not a sale. Um, it, it's, it's, it's not difficult to have to do. It's really interesting, John, that you say that because, again, today's episode has been um, sort of a, a culmination of a lot of feedback we've got of the very first episode we did, which was with Simon Ladman from Access, where even he said that, he thought they were really organised. They'd been working with us. It happens to be MAPAR, their accountants, but with their accountants, and they thought they were organised. But even then, as you said, the way in which you look at that information when you're managing the business, as compared to how a acquirer may seek to look at it, including, as you probably know, there are accounting policies that a vendor may have that an acquirer may not have. So there's lots of changes there, really, and there's lots of things that um, getting the information in a in a in a place that you can use. Uh, and I always used to say that um, you know whether or not it's about selling. The thing that I always try to say with people who we work with is it's about giving yourself them options. You can always say no, but it's really sad and where opportunity sometimes arises for somebody. And because the due diligence process can take so long, mm. because they're starting behind the eight ball, then actually the opportunity expires. Yeah. You know, and that and that's a very sad situation. So let me, you know, go back on a few things. So you've you've said there, and maybe you can talk in in more detail from, as you say, both the the sort of legal side and potentially the the client side, having so recently gone gone through this. Um, am I right in saying this was as recent as September? Yeah. 
Yeah, early September, 6th okay. of September, yeah. So you look like you've slept since. You've managed yeah. to... <laughs> yeah, a little bit, yeah. yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. Um, so, again, you know, DD, due diligence, and, and, you know, I often ask these questions here, you know, is it is it the devil's detail? Is it delicious data? And you just reminded me of another one, which is it is delays and distractions. And I think that's something people really need to understand. So in your experience, John, talk me through some of the common pitfalls you see particularly when you're advising a client, but also maybe where you've had to swallow your own medicine. Yeah, I mean, I think if you if you look at it visually and take through each step, if you, if you look at a straw man and you say the, the head is, is, is the shareholders, the share structure, that's where you should start. So you should make sure that your your share structure on the company's house reflects reality because you're quite often finding in, in, in high-growth businesses that shares may have been promised or mm. transferred and the documentation doesn't quite sit. So that's an easy win and you should review that on a regular basis anyway because, you know, your equity is key. Um, and then you sort of, you, you move down to, in, in effect, the beating heart, which is the employees and, and the directors. Um, and you can look at that, um, their employment contracts, make sure their restrictive covenants are very, very robust because, uh, you know, any creative agency or, or a legal, agent, uh, legal firm, your people... Are, is your value mm. um, so they're, they're the areas you look at and obviously you, you for, for the shareholders going back to the head I'll skip that there but um, your shareholders agreement is really really important um, you should review that on a regular basis if you've got new shareholders or someone leaves um, what you don't want, um, and I don't know if you know the concept of good and bad lever provisions. I, I certainly do, but yeah. but let's let's respect that lots of the people who listen to this are listening because they're on a journey, and, they, yep. and and so therefore they may not be there. So I think it'd be really useful for you quickly just to refer to that because it is a key element that I have experienced personally. Yeah. I, I mean, you look at a draft shareholders agreement and the articles of association dovetail it, and you'll think, wow, these the, I don't understand much of this. It's very lengthy. But for a high-growth businesses, you can boil it down into a few important provisions. The main one that I always bang on about is that the equity needs to follow management and the people that are adding value to the business. So the reason you have good and bad lever, which essentially means if you leave in a good scenario, you get value. In a bad scenario, you get little or no value. That means that if, if someone leaves the business, they're no longer adding value. So why should they retain the equity? Because you need to get that back and you either need to buy it yourself or you need to bring someone else in. And that that's the real major issue that a lot of owner-managers don't bolt down day one. Um, and hopefully you, you sign the shareholders agreement, it sits on a drawer, but you would have seen it. People fall out. Um, I, I actually think, John, there's, there's a, a more fundamental challenge with a lot of the kind of uh, businesses that we represent and work with in that they have started as a craft. And we spoke about this in a... In a, in a the podcast with John and Space 48 that often agencies start as a vehicle to deliver a craft and therefore it's been a you know off the shelf company formation and the thing that I see and people think that I'm somehow I'm either sponsored by a law firm or something because I always say to them go back and look at your agreements and the thing that actually shocks me is the number of people I work with where a shell's agreement simply doesn't exist so they'll have articles, articles of association, and again, we're not wishing to preach, but the articles of association are the, the rules that say how the company yeah. exists and, and how the directors behave, etc. and even explains what the company should do. Uh, and lots of people 
uh, get those things mixed up and think that their articles will cover them. And as you say, um, I've not been in a business yet where there has not been, over the life of that business, some change. It's not always a fallout, but the founders change. Uh, life changes, your ambition changes. And actually then being able to describe how you deal with that fallout is the most important. And I often say to people that the, the value of the legal documentation is not to try and tie up in knots, but it's to give you that guidance, that leeway, that if something does change, and by the way, by the time you get to a situation where it needs addressing, wouldn't it be great if we knew the rules of the game beforehand? So I am I am surprised, and for anybody who's listening now who doesn't have a shells agreement and thinks their articles cover it, that's the first takeaway for me today. Make sure you've got something that represents the, the interest of the business being the articles as I see it and the interests of the shareholders being a shareholders agreement and separate the two. Yeah, ab- absolutely. And, it, you know, it, the earlier you do it, the better. And you will save costs and time. And as I say, it's just an insurance policy that you hopefully put in a drawer and then, you you know, you review it if someone leaves or someone comes in. But you need to make sure if, if the shareholdings change, you speak to your lawyer and accountant and, and you get that because that's where, where mistakes yeah. happen. Um, so you know, you, you make sure you, you you know you lock in your human capital, and we'll come on to that later, which is your shareholders agreement, um, your employment contracts. You know, they're the lifeblood of the business, um, and then you start to look at the the arms, which is the, the customers and the suppliers. Um, you know, make sure your terms and conditions, particularly in the digital agency, where you're you're entering into the field of IP creation for customers, you need to make sure that you know what your IP is, your background IP and what IP you're creating for people and that there's a clear line drawn when that project is delivered. Does it transfer? Does it stay with you? Do you license it? Um, A lot of technical and digital agencies are more and more using open source software. You know, that all needs to be looked at. You need to have policies. so, you know, that's your suppliers and your customers. So you make sure those contracts are plain English, simple, but done by a lawyer yeah. uh, and that they are signed, dated, and then yeah. when they are reviewed, extended, you simply put it into a dry, a hard, you know, yeah. put it onto the your system so you can just, when you're asked, you know, where all your up-to-date customer contracts are and supplier contracts because again and again and again, um, we are becoming a more data-driven society. A lot of business is done online and contracts are the way of dealing with that. Yeah. If you go through a due diligence process, you can spend an age trying to find the correct contracts. Um, so that that's really key. Have a have a contract manager internally that 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 is their part of their job spec to make sure that you know when your sales team signs a contract, and I'm sure agencies do this, that it goes somewhere that is it that it's assessed on a, a quarterly basis, um, because that's where I find a lot of the time is wasted in due diligence is finding which contracts are renewed. I, I, it, again, I, I, it's never ceased to amaze me the organisations yeah. I've been in, and some large organisations, yeah. some PLC scenarios, where customer you know contracts just don't exist. They've no. they've gone on, and there's a contract that was signed, as you say, you know, seven years ago, and you know people you know people will argue that the spirit of the contract exists, but try and explain that to somebody who's then going to part with their money for your business. That's not going to happen. Yeah. I also think there's um there's a risk in a lot of small businesses where the perception of, you said there, get a lawyer to do your contracts. Well, why should I do that 
when I can just take a purchase order from a, from a, a customer. Mm. And, you know, there was a time in my career as a salesperson where, you know, that was the most important thing you did, obtain purchase orders. And trying to explain to people now that the difference of um, the terms and conditions and, you know, we, we probably won't get into the detail of it today, but one of the things that um, surprises most of the people that we work with is the concept of a change of ownership clause in a contract. Yeah. So if somebody comes along and says... You know, they, they don't look at that when they review it. They're happy to take a PO specifically off some of the larger clients, and it's and it's part of the growth of that business. Yeah, and you, and you won't have a choice to, to really other than to be on their, their terms. But what you do do there is you you check the the IP position, the confidentiality position, and the change of control provision, which is key. Go go back on yeah. IP interests me for, yeah. for lots of reasons, because again, I think specifically. In the sector that we serve, in the sort of digital agency space, there are those agencies who are um, building a product and building, I would say, a clearly definable IP. There are others who are delivering potentially a methodology. Mm. So maybe even a project-based business, but there's a methodology that the client's buying. How do you advise somebody to even recognise and start to identify their IP if it's not you know, an obvious product? It's if you've got a platform or a product that you build on for your clients, that that's your IP. So if you've just got a plain vanilla platform um, that's a dashboard um, and you've created that in a certain way that is unique, that's your IP. And then the client might want to put a button there or a button here, um, and that's what you assist with the project. It's defining what have you created and what you use again and again and again for other clients because if you make the mistake of saying, well, all the IP created, you know, in this project mm. is the clients. Yeah. Well, how do you decipher what's yours mm. and what's theirs? Mm. So it's really, really important because you might you might not be able to separate the code or you might be able to, but it might be very difficult after mm. the event. So it's just if you've built something propriety that you use again and again and again, you need exclusive use of that. Mm. And that that's key, and it's recognising it early on. It is, and, and and that's the point, isn't it? I know this is going to be a recurring theme through this, John, about yeah. about you know acting early to avoid disappointment later. Yeah. Because there are arguments that we will have both seen over the years where you cl- you can make a claim on the IP, but actually. It, you know, someone else says, but for the first five years of your business, you didn't do that. You gave it away. You did this. You did mm. the other. Um, and again, I'm, I'm a big, I'm a big believer in the methodology. I'm a big believer in, um, you know, it doesn't matter what you're buying. We still buy people, and we buy the way in which that service is delivered. Yeah. Uh, and I do think there's a lot more that agencies can do to define and document their methodology and see where that is perceived as potential IP yeah. as well. Where I see the mistakes happening is, you know, you, you get the the development agreement, whether it's a web development agreement or software, and that's that's fine, that's clear, but then it falls short with the statement of works Yeah. because you have this master agreement which you think gets you, you know, out of jail and works, but then there is strange clauses and, and provisions put in the statement of works which, which is actually the project. So, again, it's it's great that you've got an in-house team to do that, but it, it's not expensive and doesn't take long just yeah. to pass that past your lawyer and say, yeah. look, does that statement of works fit the licence or development yeah. agreement? And they'll say yes or no. And it's just it's easy to do, but if you're a busy business and you don't yeah. do it, it can, it can cause real issues in due diligence. Okay. Yeah. Well, maybe let's use that then to, yeah. to develop the conversation. So... We know there's lots of things that we should do 
and there's lots of things that we should do at the start but reality kicks in as you say it's a busy business very often by nature of the kind of businesses we work with that are, are looking at a Julian's processes because somebody has come knocking some some opportunities arisen and in the majority of cases I won't say that all cases the majority of cases that's been led by the outside interest the third party not necessarily by the the plan by somebody and so all those things that you know if you could start again what would you do aren't there but let's talk about the things where maybe you've seen it actually cause an issue so where have you seen and talk some of our listeners through so they can understand to say okay I'm going to make sure I don't make that mistake or I can plan for it where have you seen due diligence errors then either delay a process god forbid kill a process or cost money in terms of increased legal and financial due diligence costs because I often say to people every question that that acquirer is going to ask is probably got a price tag on it yeah be it small or be it big um or where the due diligence has not been strong enough or basically ripped evaluation to pieces yeah um the, the main areas are um real property so if you've got a significant building industrial buildings probably not particularly relevant mm. for for our audience um uh, intellectual property ownership not owning licensing mm. terms and conditions but the one that um can cause issues internally most is emi option schemes and okay. making sure um and for the listeners i'm, I'm sure they've, they've probably come across it but it, enterprise management incentive and it, it basically gives a management team, up and coming um, people in the team, the ability to take an option on the on a sale tax efficiently. Um, now, if that's not structured correctly, um, it can disqualify the the whole tax yeah. advantage of the scheme, which can be disastrous if you know the business is selling for many millions. Yeah. You're talking serious figures. So that, for me, um, is quite a common common area that comes up. And, and even if it's done correctly. The buyers, lawyers, accountants, um, advisors will look at it in minute detail. Yeah. So that that's an area that if you're going into an e- EMI, and there is all sorts of um, resources on the internet now for, for doing that, I always get lawyers and accountants yeah. involved early on um, and keep it simple. Um, a lot of people come to me with EMI options and, and they want the, we call them triggers for getting the shares, yeah. and it's all EBITDA and sale. Just keep it simple. Um, you know, either, either have the shares vest over a period or you just simply say look guys um we're in we're in this together we're building value together if you're here on an exit you will benefit if you leave for whatever reason the option goes and for me that just keeps it very very simple agreed everyone knows where they're at um, and you're building you're building and i've got to say you know out of any legislation for owner managed businesses emi is fantastic mm. um, and it's one of the one of the last tax advantages that our owner managers have mm. um, particularly maybe after the, the next budget so um, it's there to be embraced and to be used correctly okay interesting yeah. so what else have you seen that maybe as you say is as what would you say is the biggest delayer so if so if you're working on a transaction yeah. and i appreciate you're working on one side of that being the legal due diligence and obviously the financial due diligence is is, is operating sometimes in tandem yeah and that's probably an interesting conversation sometimes in tandem and sometimes i have witnessed transactions where for reasons i didn't quite um appreciate or understand that either side wants you know legal to get done and then we'll instruct the instruct the finance or vice versa and i've never understood but it, but i've seen it happen but where have you seen 
um, I'm going to say frustration. So you're advising that client and you know that this is going to delay or going to take more of your time and therefore cost the client or just unnecessary, you know, time and distraction. Yeah, well, it, it is always generally the financial and tax side of it. Generally, because the if there's a debt funder and particularly the way uh, the economy is going at the moment, due diligence, financial due diligence is going to run the transaction. So generally, that's always done first. You generally want to get probably 80% of the financial due diligence done before legals are instructed. Um, and that's where the barriers come because um, the, the concept of working capital and how you calculate that in some businesses isn't really understood. Yeah. Um, and how a buyer and a seller would look at that is very different. So if you can't demonstrate to a buyer or a bank what your what is called normalised working capital, which is essentially your 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 debts that are outstanding, less your creditors are outstanding. That's simplistically what it is. If you can't calculate that from your figures on a monthly basis over a year, then it causes real frustration for a buyer. And the level of sophistication from the private equity funds, from the larger buyers, compared to high growth businesses is very, very different mm. what they're expecting. So that's where I've... Uh, I've seen the frustration so much so that, you know, some of the the larger accounts have just reported to the buyer saying, we, we can't tell you what the working capital is because the method of reporting internally isn't sufficient. The, the systems aren't correct. Um, to unravel this is going to take some time and, and the deal can go off. Yeah. So the, the the lesson you learn there is is that you either need a, a financial controller, an FD, or or you need to outsource it very early on from one to two to mm -hmm. two million turnover. I say once you get to five million, absolutely you need yep. to think about outsourcing, having an interim FD and then potentially full time when you when you yeah. grow further, particularly if you're looking at um, an exit or private yep. equity. It, it's fascinating it's fascinating you say that, John. I mean, you know, we so one of the things that, you know, you know, part of the map proposition is to provide monthly management accounts to clients. Yeah. And you know, I am a big fan of saying keep that as simple as you can and, you know, know the numbers that matter to your business. And normally that would be a PL conversation. How is your trading? Are you making money? You're not making money. Do you know how you are making or losing that money? But the one thing I say to everybody is at the same time to do all that, this data, to use your phrase, sits in the background. Yeah. And very often I've had lots of people question some of the pages. So, you know, what does the balance sheet tell? What, right, you don't need to know that until the day you do. But if you can then turn around to a potential acquirer and say, don't worry, we can because we've run all that data for the last 12, 18 months, three years, the fact that the business owner never needed it yeah. does does give it that value at the time when it when it really, really, really matters. Yeah. Okay, interesting. Um. So that sort of leads us on to an obvious segue, which is how the business owner can better get prepared. So there's the methodology you spoke about, your straw man concept that says, look at it from maybe your own set of eyes. Also, um, look at it through the acquirer's eyes. What are they likely to do and likely to see? Maybe even if you go back to your own recent experience, so you've advise for many many years you know more than 20 years in this in this space in terms of MA activity but you've recently gone through it if you like and, and and lived the reality do you think what 
could you have done and maybe it or is there anything you should have been more prepared for and could have done better looking at your own recent transaction um i think the knowing your contractual side um you know because companies go through reorganizations we were we were a partnership then we were an llp then we we're a limited company so it's tracking that and tracking where the contracts are because they can be they can mm. be historic names that's an area um, you know, also, you know, we, we as lawyers have, have, have got very decent debt management systems and all that sort of stuff. But if you're a business that deals with work in progress because you yep. record time, yep. all of that needs to be looked at. Lots, um, of pro- lots of agencies by project basis of that, aren't they? Because they yep. are, they may have a, let's just say they're working on a long web build. Yeah. And, you know, they've, you've, they've got, they've agreed potentially some, I'd love it if they agree deposits, but not all do. But yeah. deposits and then some kind of payment scheme. But it's how do you reconcile that spend while you're doing it, isn't it? And that concept of work in progress yeah. is your, key. Your income recognition policy yeah. is key. And that needs to be reflective in your historic accounts. Because when you go through a process, they will say to you, right, we will we will um, determine your final equity value mm. of your business by your your old policies, so you mm. need to demonstrate that that's what you've actually done. Now, if you've got a client that you ha- you, you, you know you have outstanding whip for six months or twelve months, yep. and then they pay you, that's your historic process. Mm. You know, some buyers might come in and say, "Well, we only have whip for three months, and we collect debts within mm. thirty days." Your business might be very different, mm. but it's all those things that that you need to be prepared for. Mm. That you know, once you get the financial due diligence questionnaire and they start digging, mm. it's quite a shock um, to do that. So that that that. That's an area that we looked at, um, you know, and, and it pays dividends to be prepared. And mm. unfortunately, we always have been prepared, so yes. it wasn't that yes. much of an issue. Yes. But, you know, I wasn't the financial partner, but I was mm. involved in that, and it was a real eye-opener mm. to see how that, that's actually done mm. in practice. It, it, it's fascinating, actually, because work in progress is probably one of the areas that I've seen the most um, discussion and, yeah. and often disagreement. Uh, and I often say to um, clients, you know, understand the accounting policy of the potential acquirer because one of the risks is we all talk about valuations and normally we talk about a multiple of something yeah whether that's your EBITDA or whether it's a revenue number and people look at that and do a fag packet calculation and say so I've got I've got x times y it's worth this and then not realize that not out of any malicious intent the job of the due diligence is to keep seeking clarification, clarification, but in aligning that business, the acquisition target to the acquiring company, there'll often be changes. And work in progress is the one that I've seen come up so many Massive. times yeah. where the the vendor says, we do this. And with respect, the acquirer says, I don't care how you do it. This is how we do it. Mm. And that suddenly wipes and it, a number off. And that number can be the difference between that person saying yes Yeah you know, as a no-brainer or regretting that decision in a couple of years' time. Yeah, agreed. Yeah, yeah. It's, so, okay. Yeah. I, the other one I wanted to sort of cover was I always think sometimes, I'll probably get uh, laughed at for this when I, when, I, when I say I'm sympathetic towards lawyers, but you get a drift, <laughs> which yeah. is the accountant, to a point, have that pulse with the client. So, um you know, we and other accounting practices will have regular touch bases, whether that's a monthly management accounts, yeah. presentation and or meeting and or quarterly. And at its very basic level, every accountant has an annual um, an annual interaction with that client and, and sort of tends to know it over a period of time. The one thing that I found sometimes challenging, 
myself and have done this is is you're then having to engage a legal professional to support you in activity and they're as distant then because they don't know your business there is distance from the problems and yet we all want to hold them accountable and say well shouldn't you have known this but you know like everything you experience will tell you where to look under the covers and where to look under the floorboards but uh, you know there has to be a way in which business owners uh you know get that relationship going with a lawyer quicker i, I often I've, I've said this before and i've said it on the podcast you know it tends to be people you know know they need an accountant to run a business and believe they need a lawyer when there's a problem or an opportunity yeah how do you what, what message would you get across to people to say look this is why you need you know you need to have that relationship even if as you say you might be starting a three five year plan but why do you need that relationship now and not wait until you need a due diligence well you don't want to be reactive when an issue's happened and a, a legal issue can arise pre-transaction uh, you know with your intellectual property or with customers so you know it's it building a trusted team and uh, early on so having your lawyer accountant that know each other you know i know map you know we've worked on you know transactions together and it, it's almost outsourcing those services that you can't do as a managing director or a CEO. You, you know, you're good at driving the growth of your business. Mm. So it's getting the team early on. But I, I agree with you. Lawyers need to talk to the clients more. Mm. So it's the type of lawyer you deal with. that they Are they going to pick up the phone and just come over for a coffee? Yeah. That's the type of lawyer you want to be working for because it's not necessarily always legal work to do. Yeah. Um, so it's picking your team, uh, trusting them, talking to them on a regular basis. But where I'll find where there is a always a you know a connect point with the lawyers is your commercial contracts again and your ip you need mm. to review that on a regular basis gdpr is ever changing yeah. it's only going to get more and more onerous um as we move on so they're the areas that you know as a board um you've got your operations team you know you, your board is should be a strategy mm. session um and your operations team should quarterly review legals mm. you know what 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 issues have we had with customers or suppliers and then you know you report that to your lawyers and that's how you get this sort of the connectivity mm. between lawyers um, which i agree you know you might not have a transaction you know you might not acquire your dna emi scheme once but it, it, it's having that two-way process yeah. and and the lawyers should almost um educate the clients on what you should yeah. really be looking at from a risk yeah. perspective it's funny we we have um, a, a position with you know R and D claims and and I've gone through this as a client as well um, where you get to the year end and then you haven't to put information in and come up with and remember the intricate details of something that happened nine ten twelve months ago and suddenly now we sit there and say look let's do it as part of the service so as every month or every quarter whatever kind of business you are we'll sit down and we'll record that information. And again, I would say I would echo exactly what you just said there. Get that same relationship with a with a lawyer because I think sometimes where I've also found that the the mismatch is the lawyer will help you. You know, it, I'm in this hole, and the lawyer gave me a ladder. Then what doesn't happen is the lawyer says, "You know what? Here's a little collapsible ladder you can carry around with you next time to get out." Yeah, you... Because it's also going back and, as you say, updating your contracts and doing all the things that you know we all make those mistakes. But learn from them and get better and better and better with everything you do. Yeah, because each, you know, I deal in a whole range of sectors and it never ceases to amaze me how different owner-managed businesses mm. are run. The the, 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 the the nuances on their income streams and the mm. contracts and how they deal with suppliers and customers makes them unique. Mm. And they don't even know that. So, yeah. you know, when, when I'll come to do an M&A transaction, I'll get some heads of terms through, I'll get this lovely information memorandum. 
and I'll read that cover to cover. But then I need to have what you know everyone calls them deep dive calls. But you need to yeah. understand the business yeah. that you're selling, um, and the way that you, you do that before is you, you're involved quite closely on how they deal with their customers through their commercial contracts. Mm. So it's it's really really important that the lawyer understands exactly how your your business works, how the data is hosted, all that sort of good stuff. Um, and then hopefully you're with the same lawyer. So when you go into a, yeah. a private equity investment or a sale, they know how your business works. Yes. Um, so when you're going through disclosure and due diligence, you're not going to miss anything. And that's key. So it's about long-standing relationships. Not, not you know, obviously if you fall out with your advisors and they're yeah. no good, you move. But if you can find one that you're comfortable yeah. with, you know, try and stick with them as, as yes. you do with, your, you know, your core senior management team. Yes. I, I mean, do you know what? That's a really interesting thought you just said that because... I can't help thinking, you know, it would be obvious when, you know, as an accountant, what does a lawyer would? And for lots of our clients, I've seen it very often with, um, you know, developers where there are different ways of doing something and somebody will say, well, I wouldn't have built it like that. I wouldn't have written the code like that. And so therefore, if you're acting on behalf of a client and an existing legal issue, let's just say an MI scheme or something exists or a share transfer or something, and you're looking at it saying, I don't think that's been done too well, you know, how do you either address that? Do you say, look, let's get all this out on the table first? Is it a, we'll address that if somebody asks a question, but it must be quite hard for you to, when I, say, I don't mean defend the indefensible, but you understand what I'm saying, where yeah. we've all seen things that go, do you know what, that really wasn't good enough. Yeah. But then you've got to work with that and it, or explain that to somebody else. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely, yeah. Incredible. I'm conscious of the time at the moment. One thing I did want to talk about was, you know, we know each other from the relationship with with MAP and what you've done and the work you've done for us as a business, including including me and my involvement with MAP and obviously also with clients. Um, I'm interested that, you know, my sort of involvement is that of a, of a non-exec director. And, um, you know, you've got, uh, as I understand it, a book that you put together yeah. that had some things about non-exec directors, which are interesting. Uh, but it was also aimed at, I'd say, quite a few of the people that I think might be listening to this podcast, which was, uh, my view is it's it was, it was, you know, about either building or scaling a tech business, which yeah. is something that everybody talks about. So, Talk us through that a little bit. Talk about where where did it come from? How long have you been doing it? Where can people find it? Maybe yeah, I, I deal um, a lot with a business called the Startup Factory um, that was set up by Ian Brooks and Guy Remond um, probably five years ago now. Um, and what they do is they um, assist technology businesses by providing services, and they may take equity or, or give strategic services. So. I've worked very closely with those that those guys with their with their portfolio mm. and um, lockdown hit you know yeah. so we thought you know what can we do best use of time so we all put our heads together um, and came up with this book it's called From the Factory Floor um, and it's basically the the genesis of a um, a startup a, a technology business through MVP all the way through to sale fictional or is it based on it's based on experience yeah, okay um, uh, Ian Brooks is uh, you know proud of the factory records connection yeah, as well so yeah. there's a lot about you know made in manchester and, and that sort of appeal to it which yeah. which, which really resonates with Love us it. as well um so there's a there's a whole section on um you know ctos mm. uh, non-exec directors um uh, growing the business culture all that sort of great stuff and then basically the summary of what we've talked today mine chapters at the back yep. the legal chapter and it, you know that starts off on me selling a business just before covid hit and, and the strains and stresses yep. of that and then goes through the process of you know just how to make things a bit easier for owner managers and really that's about corporate governance and just having mm. good governance 
across the business from the start. Yeah. You know, taking the best of what PLCs do yeah. and putting it with your spin into an owner-managed business. Yeah. Um, so that's it, really, the book. And it's been really well received from, from the audience and, you know, the, the technology audience in Manchester. And if um, somebody's listening today wants to find it, how, how do they find it? It's on Amazon. Okay. So, yeah, it's come fr- from the factory floor. Right. Uh, it's on Amazon. Um, and I, I do have quite a few um, complimentary copies as well. So if anyone <laughs> does want a copy, I can send it through. But it, it, it's written by people that have done it. That's the key, um, and and that and that's what is key. Um, and it's not, you know, it's eight, you know, it's not mm. too long. It's a nice, nice, easy read. So, yeah, anyone wants a copy, let me know. Well, yeah. when we first discussed the the sort of to use your phrase genesis of of the map room and the and the concept of this podcast, it was really important to Paul and I that it was about reality because, you know, we said this is not a th- methodology. It's not another podcast on how to run a business it literally is bringing together knowledge share um, and bringing the experience of people who've been and done it good and bad and I'm, I'm more than happy to discuss successes in my own errors and mistakes and actually bring people together that have either been through that journey have just gone through it and can give real learning and real advice to somebody because you know we can all go and read lots and lots of books written by somebody who might be you know very intellectual very academic and never actually done it and not got yeah. the phrase we the phrase we often use because of the map room analogies the battle scars yeah so i think i think that really really uh matters so excellent yeah. okay well i'm really grateful for the time you've given us today no John. i've loved it it's great yeah. um always conscious you know if i've got a lawyer in the room if my time's running on it might cost me money yeah. so uh, okay. so that's fantastic yeah um i just want to again say thank you i think you've brought a really unique side to this as i say it's it's you know we can we can we could have brought in lots of lawyers who could tell us about all the deals they've done for somebody else but when you've had to live it I and mean, it's so so recent and so raw yeah. in your own memory i'm sure that's going to change how you advise people going forward so i think that's really special so i'm going to say thank you for your time thank you for anybody who's tuned in whether it's for the first time or whether you're a returning listener to the map room uh, i'm stuart brown and we will speak to you soon thanks and bye for now The Map Room has been brought to you by MAP, the outsourced finance function for digital agencies. Subscribe via your usual podcast app to never miss an episode.